If you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this passage. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray one more time before we dive into the word. Father, when, when our Lord Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, he meant it. And because we are sinners, uh, we cannot understand, much less obey your word, apart from the gracious work of your Holy Spirit. So I pray right now that your spirit would guide what I say and would guide what all of us hear. And I pray that the result would be not simply that we would understand this text, although I do pray that happens, but that we love this text and that we obey what it teaches us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We love to speculate. We especially love to speculate about the direction of history and the end times. I was a child in the days of the late great planet Earth. And we were all obsessed with that. Uh, we used to even have a, have a joke about that, sort of, if you can't chart it, don't believe it. And the more complex your chart, obviously, the more spiritual you were. Then it seemed like somewhere after that, all the cool kids went amillennial. And today, for the first time since World War I, postmillennialism is making a resurgence, and we see all of these forces at work in evangelicalism. So we like to speculate about this. Well, we're in good company. Uh, the apostles clearly were curious as well. Their perspective now was a little different from ours. Uh, their perspective was one of Jewish nationalism, and they wanted right now for Jesus, having you know, done all this dying on the cross and rising again stuff, can you go ahead and get on to the really important thing, which is whooping up on the Romans? That's what we really care most about. Jesus' response, in essence, is, I have a different agenda. They ask about eschatology, and you guys are seminary students, so you know what that big word means. They ask about eschatology, he gives them the Great Commission, again. And this is one of several times that Jesus gives the Great Commission. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's not just once. It's not like Jesus said it one time and the different gospel writers just sort of got it all mixed up and gave it in different words. Uh, every instance in the gospels is a different time. And so, yes, in Luke 24, he gave it at the, the night of the first Easter. Uh, Matthew 28 is a different time and in different words. This is a different time in different words. In other words, this was so important that God 
had Jesus say it over and over again. It was something he wanted them to grasp. And this one frames it in terms of God's plan for history, in terms of the role of the Holy Spirit, in terms of the nature of the task, and in terms of the scope of the task. What I want us to do this morning is to consider each one of these in turn. The context for this passage obviously is the ascension of Jesus, but specifically it's questions about God's plan for history. This passage was framed by references to the destiny of history. Their question was framed in those terms. The words of the angel at the end are framed in those terms. And this is because that's a very biblical theme. One of the, one of the characteristics of Scripture, one of the characteristics of a biblical worldview is that history is going somewhere. It had a beginning, it's going to have an end, and there is a plot in between, and someone is in charge of that plot. And it's definitely under his control, accomplishing his purposes. And it's understandable that they would see the connection between Jesus' coming and the arrival of the day of the Lord. It's a major Old Testament theme. The day of the Lord is going to be be the the, the climax of the ages as you read through the Old Testament prophets. It's going to be the time in which God steps on to the scene of human history and makes things right. So it made total sense to them. It was now very clear that Jesus was the Messiah of the day of the Lord. So they're expecting the climax of the ages to come right there. However, Jesus makes it clear to them that they were actually asking the wrong questions. And by the way, we continue to ask those wrong questions ever since. They want timing and details. Jesus focusing on what the time between the first and second coming is for, and he wants obedience. They want speculation. He wants evangelization. They want the restoration of Israel, and they want it now. Jesus has a different agenda. Now, there were several components to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It was very clearly the day of judgment, You know, don't say the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. You don't want the day of the Lord, is what the prophets make fairly clear. Uh, This is going to be a cataclysmic event. It's going to be a day in which God comes and judges the peoples of the earth for their disobedience to him. But it's also going to be the day of Messiah. It's going to be the day in which the Lord himself will suddenly stand in his temple. It's going to be the day in which God becomes a man in the person of Messiah, the anointed one, to make things right. It's going to be the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as the prophet Joel makes clear. But there's another component to it that they missed a lot and that we often miss as well. Over and over and over again in the prophets, the day of the Lord is the day in which God will gather the Gentile nations to himself. It's the day in which God's saving plan would go global in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and a promise repeated all throughout the Old Testament. So as they thought, well, Jesus is here, he's the Messiah, that must mean this is the day of the Lord, they focused on the nationalistic parts, but Jesus pointed them in a different direction. He pointed them to what they should be doing during this unexpected interval between the first and second comings of Christ, something they hadn't been able to see very clearly simply from the Old Testament. He gave them the purpose of this time between the times. They wanted the defeat of the Gentiles, Jesus intended instead that they be the instruments of the Gentile salvation. So yes, there is an eschatological dimension to missiology, to speak in terms of of the language used in your theology classes. But it has to do with purpose. And we need to grasp that purpose. The point of this period in the history of the world is global evangelization. 
It's not just we're sort of marking time, spinning our wheels until Jesus comes back. The very point of this interval between the two is to get the gospel to everyone. That's the point of the whole thing, and that will revolutionize our thinking and our ministry if we recognize I'm not just here to take care of people until Jesus comes back. I'm here to, as in ministry to equip and mobilize people to take the gospel to everyone. That's what this text tells us. Now, what we see here is that the power for the task is the Holy Spirit. So why was the Holy Spirit given to his people? Well, as we look through the New Testament, we, we see several answers given. The Holy Spirit came to inspire the writing of Scripture. The Holy Spirit convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He gives us new birth. He gave, he's the guarantee, the, the down payment, the foretaste of our inheritance in Christ. He works in us to put sin to death and to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. He gives us gifts for service in the body of Christ. But as glorious as these answers may be, they're incomplete because most of them concentrate on what he does for us. But what he does for us must be understood in light of what he intends to do with us and through us. And that's the perspective this passage gives. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you can really have a fulfilled life, so that you can exaggerate your self-esteem. No, not at all. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Michael Green put it this way. The comforter did not come to make people comfortable. He came to make the missionaries. And this passage fleshed out the relationship between the Holy Spirit and our mission as Christians. The Holy Spirit gives us power for mission, and this is power we absolutely need. You know, Jesus did say, apart from me, you can do nothing, and he did mean it. The foes we face are too strong for us. We face the flesh. We face fallen human beings who, according to Scripture, are blind to the gospel, slaves to sin, and dead in their sin. We face the world as a system in rebellion against God, and we face the devil and his demons, and they are all too much for us. But our foes are nothing compared to him. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So this is incredibly good news that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you as the precondition for you will be my witnesses. The New Testament links the gift of the Holy Spirit with power for proclamation. It'll come again just a few chapters later, Acts 4.31, after they have been arrested, threatened, they have this prayer meeting in which they ask God for boldness, and we're told they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So power from the Holy Spirit is not power that makes us comfortable. It's power that uses us for the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel. And it is a power that uses us, not a power we use. People like power, and they will turn to religion to get power, but they're looking for the kind of power they can use for their purposes. This power is different. Um, one, of the, one of the most interesting things that's happened in pop culture in the United States in my lifetime was the Star Wars phenomenon. And there's a whole lot of people who see that as a theological paradigm. Luke, use the force. That's not the way God works. We don't use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses us. And he uses us for his purposes, for his mission to advance his kingdom and promote his glory. So you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, power to transform you, but also power to get the gospel out through you. Now, the nature of the task then is you will be my witnesses. The nature of the task is 
proclamation. Gospel proclamation lies at the heart of the mission of the church. The Holy Spirit makes us witnesses. Now just think in terms of what a witness does in a court scene here in America. Uh, There's three things you need to be a witness. Uh, You need to have experienced whatever you're witnessing about. You need credibility as a witness. And you need to be able to communicate what you're witnessing to. And so it is with a witness for Jesus. You need the experience. You have to know him to be his witnesses. You can't give away what you don't have. And so the precondition for being his witness is to be one who yourself has been born again on the hearing of the gospel. But you also need credibility. Uh, If you've watched court scenes on TV or in movies, which is what defines most of our experience, you're aware of the fact that the opposing attorney will do everything he or she can to discredit a witness so that their testimony doesn't hold any any influence on the jury. And in the same way, the world will attempt to discredit us, and our lives must back up our testimony. And hence, the work of the Holy Spirit all goes together. The work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us, in putting sin to death in us, and cultivating in us the fruit of the Spirit, making us like Jesus, reinforces our witness by giving us that credibility. But there's also this element of communication. There is no such thing as a silent witness in court. And some of you have heard me say this before, but there is this statement that I absolutely hate, and it's ascribed to Francis of Assisi, and it's, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Well, I think the best retort to that came from one of my favorite sources of of theological and philosophical depth, the Babylon Bee, several years back, in which they said, pastor resolves to feed the hungry at all times and when necessary to use food. (laughs) That makes as much sense as preaching the gospel without using words. You can't feed the hungry without food. You can't proclaim the gospel without words. It is words. Evangelism is at the heart of our mission. Other things compete for our attention. Other things are offered either as components of the mission or even as the heart of the mission itself. And even among evangelicals, there's there's a lot of other other claimants for our attention. Things like doing works of mercy for people, which by all means we should do. Things like the pursuit of justice or the redemption or creation of culture. Well, it's really interesting. A study was done recently by Robert Woodbury looking at the impact of the work of conversionist Protestant missionaries on the places where missionaries went. See, you may not realize this, but there was a time when liberals did missions. Um, as, As the social gospel moved in to the Christian world in the late 19th century, many Christian groups adopted a social gospel perspective, stopped sharing the gospel, but kept sending missionaries to do good works. And what Woodbury looked at is what's the long-term impact on culture and society of these two kinds of missionaries, the conversionist ones and the social gospel ones. And what he discovered is that the conversionist Protestants did more good for the social stuff than the social gospel people did. And it's not hard to understand why. I mean, a disciple of Jesus is someone who obeys everything Jesus commands. Therefore, A disciple of Jesus is someone who will be zealous for good works, who will have a strong impact on the society around them. But if you go to do good works, if you go to heal the sick or feed the hungry, you're the only one who will do it. And when you're done, it'll stop. If you go to make disciples, 
who make disciples, who make disciples. Then you will be reproducing people who are zealous for good works, and it'll keep going long after you've left. And so it is no surprise that the heart of the thing is that we are to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And that then leads to everything else. And so we at the International Mission Board, in looking at the biblical evidence, have identified this as the core missionary task. We are to share the gospel and make disciples, evangelism and disciple-making. Well, where does disciple-making happen? In the New Testament, it always happens in the fellowship of a church. So where there are no churches, we must plant churches. And for those churches to be healthy, we must train leaders for those churches. And so we look at these four things, share the gospel, disciple believers, plant churches, train leaders, and then we have to get there, so we add on entry, and we're out to work ourselves out of a job, so we put exit to partnership. And that constitutes then what a missionary does, and that's what mission is that is Christian mission. If there is no gospel sharing, it isn't Christian missions. It may be a good thing, but it's not missions. So that's, that's the nature of the task. The scope of the task is Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And once again, this is just following right on from the Old Testament, and the apostles would have recognized it. Isaiah 49.6, the Lord says to his servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was always God's plan. This is not an afterthought. And in many ways, this verse is actually a table of contents of the book of Acts. Starts in Jerusalem right up until the stoning of Stephen. And it's like, okay, remember I told you about the rest of the world? Well, you're not getting about it, so I'm going to have to give you a little kick here to get you out there. But you have... Following the stoning of Stephen, the scattering of the disciples, you have Judea and Samaria, and then starting with Cornelius, and then Antioch, and on it goes out to the ends of the earth. The story of Acts is the story of the gospel pressing outward to the ends of the earth. It's the story of the gospel crossing one barrier after another. It starts in Jerusalem, but it ends in Rome. And this fits the entire Old Testament theme of God's heart for the nations. And it fits in with Jesus' point of view of where this time fits in the biblical timeline. It's never enough for the gospel to be where it already is. It's never enough for the gospel to just be where we happen to be. It has to go where it hasn't gone yet. So given this reality, given that we have the context is that's the whole point of this point in history, the power for it comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives who was given to us to make us evangelists and missionaries. Uh, the, the nature of the task is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And the scope of it is the ends of the earth. How are we doing? Well, there's one way you could look at it and say we're doing pretty well. I mean, there is some sort of Christian witness in practically every country that has a seat in the United Nations. And if that's all that's needed, then, then we've done it. Christianity is a truly global religion. However, in a far more realistic sense, we're not doing well at all. So about a third of the world would call itself Christian, but only 4% of the world is evangelical. And then when we start looking at access to the gospel, it gets even more serious. There's about 1,100 nations, in the biblical sense of the word, on the planet, people, people groups. 
Over 6,000 of that 11,000 are unreached people groups. And what we mean by that is there either is no gospel witness or it is sufficiently small that right now, without outside help, it would simply simply implode in on itself. Over 3,000 of those people groups are what we call unengaged unreached people groups, which means that at the moment, nobody's even trying to get the gospel to them. And these make up a total population of over 3 billion people on earth with no access to the gospel. Now, just to put that in, in context, the year I was born, there were 2.9 billion people living on the planet. And there's now over 3 billion people in the world who do not have access to the gospel, probably have never met a Christian, have no, no access to a copy of scriptures, there's no church around them, there is nothing for them. And they will be born, grow up, live sinful lives in rebellion against God, and then die and face judgment without ever hearing the only solution to that problem, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do we need healthy, Bible-teaching, gospel-preaching churches here in the States? Yes, absolutely. Is there need here? Yes, absolutely. Do we need churches that have a passion for evangelizing their communities? Absolutely. In fact, a church that does not have a passion for evangelizing its community is not a healthy church. And, and you know, we, we, we've, we talk a lot on the mission field about what makes up a healthy church. I'm sorry, but there's a lot of churches here in the States that through their, their really abandonment of their responsibility to share the gospel are pretty unhealthy in and of themselves. But we also need many more workers for the global harvest. The IMB right now is in the unique position of having more resources to send people than we have people to send. Do you hear that again? We have more resources to send people than we have people to send. And we haven't been in that position for over 20 years. This is quite a phenomenal situation. We also have a goal, a long-term goal, of increasing our net number of missionaries by 500 by the year 2025, and this just barely scratches the surface. I mean, to give you an idea of, of just the needs of things, my old affinity, Central Asia, has about 300 and, somewhere between 360 and 380 million people in them. It is 0.025% Christian. Did you hear that? 0.025% Christian. There are about 400 people groups there with no witness to Jesus at all. And also, by the way, no copies of Scripture in their language. There's a total in our organization of a few hundred missionaries, but if you take people as couples instead of singles, we have more people groups. Well, we, we, we have, it's more than a million to one in terms of the balance of lost people to workers for Jesus. And we as an organization have hundreds of open job requests. And by the way, I want to, want to later rest a misconception that's been floating around out there. Uh, it's been said that only 1% or less than 1% of evangelical missionary work is focused on the unreached. Where that number came from, I do not know. What I do know is that in our organization, that is absolutely flat out untrue. As a matter of fact, about 90% of our budget and about 90% of our personnel are in some way or other focused on getting the gospel to unreached peoples. And the vast, vast, vast majority of our workers, in fact, are in places where you can't even get a missionary visa. 
So we have hundreds of opportunities that nobody's lining up to get. And I would, I would simply say to you what I heard missionaries say once, actually the very night that God called me into missions. This missionary said, why would you line up with 10 other people for a ministry position that you may or may not get when we have hundreds that nobody's lining up for, where the gospel is desperately needed? We need missionaries. So what should you do? What should you, as a member of this community at Southwestern Seminary, do? The first thing I would say to you is grow as a disciple yourself. We define missionaries as a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples for Jesus where Jesus is not yet known. Well, it's got to start with being a disciple. And the vast majority of things we look for in missionary candidates are basic discipleship issues. We want to see people who are growing in conformity to the image of Jesus in the fellowship of a local church. We want to see people who are sharing the gospel. We want to see people who know Scripture and are faithful to Scripture. We want to see people who you're happy to be around and not would just as soon not be around because this Holy Spirit is working to produce the fruit of the Spirit in them. That's the kind of thing we're looking for. So grow as a disciple yourself, which is actually what you're supposed to do anyway, no matter what. So that, that's, that's a pretty easy one. The second one is also something you're supposed to do no matter what. Share the gospel where you are. Now, it may seem to you, well, I'm at the seminary. Yes, you are at the seminary, but I dare say that Fort Worth has lost people in it. Am I right? Are there lost people in Fort Worth who need to hear the gospel? Yeah, I think so. Get out there and share it. And don't be afraid to, to, to do cold call evangelism. So one of the things we do now as part of our, our orientation for new missionaries is to send them out into the city of Richmond in small teams to share the gospel. We pair each little team up with a healthy local church that we know will be a good home for any new believers. Well, in two days' time, about three weeks ago, our folks went out and 17 people came to faith in Jesus Christ and over 50 people were interested in further follow-up conversations, which were then passed on to their to their local churches. One of the great things is that some of the churches are going, you mean you can do this? <laughs> and it's actually spurring them on, I think, to greater evangelistic faithfulness. But share the gospel where you are. We will not send you in the IMB if you don't have evangelism as part of your normal lifestyle. And we ask you about it. And we ask you when and where and how you shared the gospel, because that's what we're sending you overseas to do. And if you're not doing it at home, you're not gonna suddenly start doing it somewhere else. So grow as a disciple, share the gospel where you are, serve faithfully in your local church. Again, a word to seminarians. Seminary is not your church. And you cannot thrive spiritually or even survive outside of the fellowship of a local church. Get engaged in a church and engage well. And this may mean that you engage as a seminarian in very humble ways. I'm very aware of the fact that churches near the seminary tend to have a whole lot of talented people in them, and that may mean you don't get to preach. It may mean that you don't get put in charge of some ministry. Well, the best place to start anything is at the bottom, and that kind of humility is key as a qualification for ministry, but you need the church, and that's another thing we look at, by the way, we look at how engaged are you in the local church that you claim to be a member of, and we ask the church about that as well. 
By all means, get the tools the seminary can give you. God has given you an opportunity and a blessing by being here that many people in the world yearn for. Don't blow it. Don't waste it. Get those tools not to puff your, your ego up, but to make you a sharper instrument in the hands of God so that you can go to the nations equipped to handle his word well and to, to disciple and lead people well. But then finally, I would say this. Ask yourself the question, why not me? I'm looking at a room full of people who appear to me to have the health, the skills, who hopefully have been sent here by their churches because they have the maturity to serve Christ well. There may very well be good reasons why you stay in the States. But like I said, we need a whole lot more than we've got right now. The world needs the gospel. It's the only hope. And I would ask you not to ask yourself, why should I go? But to ask yourself, in light of the clear command of Jesus, why shouldn't I? Let's pray.